make sure that uh, that program doesn't contain controversial subjects and uh, you're not impolite to people. No, definitely not, Dad. You know me. I'm never, <laughs> ever controversial or yeah, impolite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Welcome to Conversations with your lovable, never pisses anyone off, ex-Muslim host, Ina. Keeping it non-controversial. Hello, dear listeners. Hope you've been well and are now fully recovered from our previous adventures in misogyny land, a.k.a. the Manosphere. I know it took me some time to recover from the intensity and depressing nature of that topic, but now I'm here with a whole new strange and uncomfortable topic. You can always count on me for that. And uh, this topic, well, some parts of it in particular, have been very hard for me to address. You'll see what I mean. It's something I've thought about addressing in some medium or another for a couple of years now. Each time I've been shying away from the difficult parts, not wanting to relive and revisit some of these things. But this year, I felt I should just go ahead and do it already. I have spent a lot of time writing and rewriting and fiddling with this episode, never quite feeling satisfied or at peace with it, but I've stalled and procrastinated and avoided it in so many ways now. I'm just going to put it out there as is. Plus, I want to get it out while we're still in the Islamic month of Ramadan, even though it's coming to a close. Anyway, onwards we go. With my recent focus on the alt-right and light, the western right in general, and the quote-unquote skeptics that are adjacent to or playing footsie with these groups, I sometimes get new listeners who maybe don't know or some who've forgotten that I am, as an ex-Muslim who grew up in a theocracy like Saudi Arabia, a pretty big critic of Islam too. Well, Islamic conservatism to be more precise. And with all the bat shittery happening in the West, with the literally regressive conservatism and trad life shit being revived and repackaged for younger generations, that stuff tends to take a more urgent place in my commentary. Since, you know, I live in the West and I'm watching things go to shit before my eyes. Things I took for granted before, like Nazis being an obscure thing of the past young people's attitudes about racism and sexism, interracial marriage, and so much more. But anyway, I wanted to take a break from that for this episode. This um, holy month of Ramadan, I've been thinking a lot about my many, many mixed feelings and memories and sentiments attached to this month. And somehow I'd like to try and give you a slice of my experience as best as I can through an audio recording. I've also been thinking about how one thing many critics of Islam miss the mark on is the fact that none of this is as black and white, clear-cut, mechanical as they want to make it seem. Muslims are flawed human beings, cherry-picking theists, searching for loopholes to outsmart their all-knowing God, like any other imperfect mere mortal chasing after an ideology that demands unachievable perfection and punishes those who cannot meet the impossible mark. Like any other theist, like any other follower of an ancient, obsolete ideology. There isn't something uniquely evil or sinister here, as the atheist right would have you believe, as many ex-Muslims who've traded one extremism for another would also have you believe. 
It is sad to see how many alt and far-right talking points about Islam so many ex-Muslims and atheists in the scene adopt today. I mean, there is, of course, definitely a more literalist, therefore extreme interpretation resulting in more orthodoxy and traditionalism, stricter adherence to old codes of morality, which is the problem, in my opinion. Now me, I'm not a huge fan of religion, especially because of the bigotries and violence and things like that I see contained within. And ultimately, I view religion as a form of traditionalism and conservatism itself. Of course, there are many interpretations to it and ways to practice. There are definitely progressive theists who I'd ally with in a heartbeat over a right-wing atheist. But at its core... I just view religion as something tying you to rules from the past, something that doesn't even add up rationally, something that ultimately holds us back if we allow it a strong presence in our lives. So I personally reject it, the whole lot of it. And I don't replace it with the nonsense Peterson spouts or other anti-SJW, anti-feminism, anti-diversity, anti-progress bullshit And I am not hitching my wagon to the cult of the intellectual dark web, either. What a shame to leave religion and come full circle to this regressiveness. But anyway, back to Ramadan. This season, my first thoughts are for those who live in Muslim-majority countries and don't believe, but aren't free to go about eating and drinking openly in this month. Those who are forced to starve against their will to keep up appearances, to be safe from judgment or otherwise. Spare a thought for those who are persecuted even for consuming medication in public, even though there are exemptions in scripture for people with illnesses not having to fast, and because it's no one else's goddamn business. But religious fervor and zeal is hard to control for people who think they're going above and beyond and scoring piety points in the month of extra holiness by telling others how to be. My mind cannot help but wonder about the surgeons and pilots, you know, those whose jobs involve responsibility for other lives, who need their concentration to be at peak performance. Do they fast? Do they feel obligated to fast or to not fast so they can look after the others depending on them? Should they be allowed to fast in this situation? Does that encroach on personal choice or is that the responsible route to go when others' lives are at risk? I remember seeing a picture shared proudly on a Pakistani relative's Facebook account of a Muslim surgeon mid-surgery being given water by the nurses to break his fast because his hands were busy cutting someone open. The idea was that this was a great noble man performing both his religious duties and his professional ones. But I mean, when I saw that picture, I couldn't help but be concerned for the patient that was put under the knife of a surgeon that hadn't eaten or drank a thing all day. Surely that can't be good. It's just one of the many thoughts that float around my mind in this time of Islamic year. The official line you get in Ramadan is that this is a holy month full of reflection and spirituality and giving. Uh Uh-huh, maybe for some. There is a lot of charity and giving food to the poor, sure. But it's also the month where hypocrisy is at its highest. Flawed humans, remember? I'm reminded of a Craigslist hookup ad someone once showed me during Ramadan of a Muslim guy who said something to the effect of, obviously I'm not gay, but I'm looking for Muslim guys for sex. After Ramadan. He had to specify that because, um, sex during Ramadan, especially (gasps) gay sex, that would be haram as fuck now, wouldn't it? 
And somehow it ceases to be magically after the holy month is over. <laughs> I don't know. In this ad, the guy also specified how he only sucked circumcised Muslim dick. Because, I mean, you gotta fit in adherence to religion wherever you can, right? <laughs> Apparently, Allah appreciates the consideration, even if it is in matters of unmarried, totally not hetero, fellatio. <laughs> I, I honestly don't know how believers justify this kind of thing to themselves. It doesn't make much sense to me, but hey, if you're breaking religious rules, watering down scripture by making your own strangely twisted sex-positive interpretations, then go for it, I say. Better than literalism, right? Honestly, I was a bit worried covering this topic, being critical of some, you know, Muslimic stuff when the climate is so hostile. I wondered about how to do this episode. How do I criticize something Islam-related in a way that doesn't give cover to anti-Muslims or classical liberals pretending to be against anti-Muslim bigotry? And it's tricky. Talking about Islam nowadays is like walking a tightrope of only a hair's breadth. But because of who I am, the intersection of my being an unapologetic lefty, a secularist, and someone who's against anti-Muslim bigotry, this tightrope is where I spend a lot of my time. It's not a topic I can choose to avoid if I want to push for progress and also be against bigotry. So I'm going to do my best to speak about it in a way that indicates to anti-Muslims that they aren't welcome here, that they aren't welcome to use my voice against people like me, against families like mine. This is just me speaking from my life experiences, making observations on what I think is one of the holiest and most hypocritical months in Islam. I shouldn't really have to be worrying about this as anyone should be able to internally criticize the practices and cultures and religions they grew up with. That's how things improve, right? But with the current state of politics, we kind of have to do this dance, even for legitimate, good-faith criticism. Unfortunately, that's the Trumpy world we exist in right now. Okay, now that I got that out of the way, back to some more hypocrisies. Now, where were we? Oh, yes. Now, during this holy period, there are those who try hard, genuinely, to curb their sinning for the month. And I really mean just for the month. I've known of several straight couples who switch for the occasion from having penis and vagina premarital sex to just anal or just oral, because apparently not penis and vagina doesn't officially count as premarital sex then. <laughs> I don't fucking know. I've struggled with understanding these absurdities for years now. And I'm not even kidding about this. This shit goes on for real. At least I've encountered it. I'm sure, of course, there are some truly pious, consistent Muslims who would be scandalized by hearing of such Ramadan hacks. But there are some that are totally open to them. Muslims are as diverse a bunch as any. You definitely get more visible conservatives, but no, there are all types. This is important. And FYI, this episode today only reflects my experiences and what I've seen. I in no way mean to comment on the Muslim community as a whole. I'm sure different people in different parts of the world have completely different experiences. Like, for example, when I lived in Saudi, I came across these types of hypocrisies less, but Pakistan was like a hotbed for this shit. 
bootleggers were killing it right before Ramadan because everyone was stocking up on their finest foreign whiskeys. Since <clears throat> bootleggers have to stop service during Ramadan because, you know, selling booze during Ramadan would be haram. So the cool kids stock up well in advance and not like it's haram any day of the year or anything. <laughs> I don't know. I guess with a bit more freedom, Pakistan gave people more choices, right? There were plenty of women who would pop their headscarves on their heads just as the call to maghrib prayer for breaking your fast was heard echoing on crackly loudspeakers throughout the neighborhood. In Saudi, when in most public places, there wasn't a choice on whether you could or couldn't wear a headscarf. So all women were wearing them anyway, out of fear of the morality police. Not much room for human failing and hypocrisy there, I guess, when there's a threat of a caning just around the corner. But yeah, the selective headscarf wearing only at the time of prayer call confused me, even as a kid. Wasn't it supposed to be a rule you're supposed to follow anyway? What did the aunties get from just having it on at prayer call? Was it like a deliberate display of religiosity just so the others could see and admire you for your temporary piety? I mean, even now at Pakistani iftar gatherings, I see this happen a lot in Canada, and there's some sort of peer pressure to it. You can't be the only lady left out not covering her head during a prayer call when it's time to break your fast. There's a few that start off not doing it, and then as more and more do it, the others feel pressured to cover their heads. Of course, I never do, and my purple or turquoise hair stands out extra, making me a target for a lot of cut-eye, but hey, I'm used to that by now. <laughs> and you know what else? It seemed extra cruel that you'd been hungry all fucking day. The moment you get to stuff your face, it's prayer time, because that's precisely when the fast breaks. So you have a few minutes to shove as many samosas as you can in your mouth before the sun starts to set and you're going to miss prayer time. So there was always a mad rush during iftar, which is the meal that you break your fast with for anyone who's wondering. So yeah, it was pretty much stuff your face and rush, rush, rush to pray. It seemed oddly cruel. And also, when we were kids, that was the precise time that they showed Full House on TV in Saudi as well right at prayer time. So luckily, my parents never forced me to pray, so I always got to watch. Unless we were at someone else's house and the other kids were praying, then I'd feel like I wanted to do it too, just to feel like a part of it. Of course, I'd go through the motions real quick and fake everything and be done in five minutes, like most kids, and we were all seated soon enough watching Bob Saget and the gang. But yeah, the timing thing seemed like a bit of a mean joke. <laughs> When I was in Pakistan, uh, and I'm sorry, I keep switching between Saudi and Pakistan, but those were the two places I spent my time in when I was younger, and I did go back and forth. But anyway, in Pakistan, I saw there were also those who quit drinking during Ramadan and those who quit only on the holiest nights of the month, the 27th being a big one. Sure, whatever way you want to do it, okay? But what I didn't get was how these people judged those who didn't also hypocritically stop during the month. I mean, seriously, you're doing something haram anyway, and same with the sex. You're not supposed to be having premarital sex around the year. You're the believer here. And I mean, do you think Allah is going to be pleased just because you switched to anal and oral for a month? 
<laughs> then you have the nerve to judge those who are more consistent than you? Fucking hell. I guess I was pretty naive about these types of things coming from Saudi, where there were fewer and, I guess, more straightforward hypocrisies that I remember. People dressing more modestly for the month. People giving up swearing from sunrise to sunset and then swearing their heart out during the time you could eat. People giving up movies with naughty scenes. I mean, this could be a reflection of my age when I lived in Saudi and the times I lived in Pakistan as well. My memories from Ramadan in Saudi are from my younger years and my memories of Ramadan in Pakistan are some of later teen years and some of early 20s. So I guess when you're 13 in Saudi, you're not as privy to people's sex lives and who's switching from penis and vagina to anal. So it could be that it happened there, but I was too young to know about the Ramadan booze and sex habits. Or it could be that people are so fearful of breaking religious rules there that it didn't happen as often. I know we did get homemade wine and moonshine out there, but I don't remember it being a common thing in Ramadan. Then there was the, if you're on your period, Allah won't accept your fast bullshit that always bothered me. Many women see it as a welcome break, I'm sure, but I can't help but notice the inherent sexism of not accepting a woman's prayers or spiritual offering because she's going through a natural bodily process that the very Allah who rejects her now because of it created, supposedly. It never ever sat well with me, even though it was a convenient excuse to throw it over zealous aunties at dinner feasts who were always trying to get you to pray or go to mosque. Just tell them you're menstruating and they'll shut the F up. It's my favorite go-to excuse for random older relatives to this day. Now, I tell you all this not so you can scoff at the Muslims, but so you can understand the complexities and confusions that go on that so many right-leaning atheist commentators on Islam don't capture. Muslims are not the perfect taqiyahing robots always plotting to take over via sharia that anti-Muslims like to describe them as. It is a rich, diverse mix of people like you and me grappling with how to fit modernity and humanity with the demands of their religion from a long-gone era. This black-and-white approach that many in the skeptosphere tend to use, it doesn't quite capture the... Um, Intricate entanglements of human minds? It's so much more nuanced than religion, bad. Islam, bad. A message I know I've tried to get across before. One that's important to understand if we want to understand the radicalizations and extreme versions as well. That things aren't always linear and neatly divided into boxes. But I digress. Ramadan was the specific topic of the hour. So all those things I mentioned before... Those are the things that have always annoyed and confused me about Ramadan, and it's quite a lot, I know. But there's another side to this, where my experience of the month is tied in with a lot of beautiful memories, too. I was fortunate to be raised in a family where there wasn't ever any pressure to fast. In fact, it was us kids who were interested in participating to feel grown up, rather than my parents forcing it down our throats. It was a month that was punctuated with so many social gatherings and feasts. Whether you were fasting or not, the festive atmosphere was contagious. The foods were plentiful, the air was warm and aromatic. Everyone was so social and cheerful after breaking fast. 
In Saudi, the stores and restaurants were festively lit, open late into the night, so people could eat and eat well past midnight so they could fill up for the next day's fasting. Some gatherings at close relatives' houses, I remember, were like a slumber party for us kids. We'd come around sunset and break fast with everyone. Then the parents would hang out till like 3 a.m. and there'd be a second meal, an early breakfast feast before sunrise. It was really exciting as a kid. We got to stay up late and play with all the other kids. Then at the end of Ramadan, there were henna nights and prep of fancy glittery clothes for Eid. The clatter of dishes, the refreshing rose water drinks, it's all embedded into my mind. And those memories are sometimes revived with the scents that come out even now in Ramadan. Though in Canada the whole city isn't lit up with festivities and feasting all night, I still occasionally go to a relative's house for a fantastic meal. They all know better than to ask me if I'm fasting or praying now. But these are all part of my feelings on Ramadan. Some good, warm, nostalgic, some bad and oppressive, some downright what the fuck and confusing. But this is human. I will continue to advocate for a secular future, the right to be free from religion, from traditionalism, but at the same time, there is comfort in enjoying the rituals, sights, and sounds from my childhood in this month. I'm off to my parents' place just tonight as I record this. I'm really looking forward to spending time with my family and enjoying some of my mom's wonderful home cooking. But... Anyway, to conclude this episode, there's still the part left that made me uncomfortable. The part that I was nervous talking about, the part I've been dreading but needed to do to get out of my system. So here goes. Specific religions and their beliefs lend themselves to specific actions out in the world. That much I'm in agreement with the new atheist types on. While there are often many factors that contribute, and this is the part they usually miss or rush past, there is no sense denying it. There is an unexpected and under-discussed effect of Ramadan specifically that I want to talk about today, something that ties into the darker memories I have about this month. A month of fasting, not eating all day from sunrise to sunset, meant something different to me as a teenage girl, something that didn't really involve spirituality or religion at its core, more like I used that as an excuse. And as hard as this is for me to speak about, even though it was half a lifetime ago for me, I will do my best to be open because I don't want others going through what I did unnoticed. In my mid-teens, I moved from Saudi to Pakistan and ended up staying with relatives to finish off the last two years of high school there. Because when I was younger, Saudi had some fucked up rules about needing co-ed schools like mine ending at a certain age, so there were few options for expat kids like myself, especially if we didn't want to end up at an all-girls religious conservative school. So I decided it might be an interesting adventure and a way to connect with my culture of origin to go to school in Pakistan for two years. I moved in with some relatives who I really enjoyed spending time with on our brief holidays there. Little did I know that when my parents left, they change and keep me under strict rule. All of a sudden, I was being judged by these people I thought were so wonderful and loving. Judged for what I wore, for what I said, for how I sat, for who I talked to in class. My young, angry, hormonal mind couldn't figure out how I had no control over anything 
all of a sudden. How I had rules now that my parents never imposed on me. How I wasn't allowed to hang out with guy friends. Something completely ridiculous and foreign to me. And somehow, as a twisted, adolescent, rebellious response to that, I decided, subconsciously, I guess, that it would be some form of regaining control over myself to just not eat. Like, to not eat at all, as much as I could get away with. If they were going to control who I spoke to and what I wore, where I went, how I sat, I was going to control what I put in my mouth and they couldn't do a damn thing about it. And somehow this seemed like a sensible solution to my teenage mind. I know, I know it sounds completely irrational and self-punishing and illogical, but it didn't come from a place of logic. It came from a place of anger and hurt and betrayal. And it started as a rebellious thing. But it grew into something more. A condition. An obsession. I stopped eating real meals. And I stopped getting my period because of that. I nibbled on fruit occasionally. And even then I was doing stuff like counting calories in a single grape. Slicing it in half because I thought one whole grape was too much. Of course... This stuff didn't go completely unnoticed as I became thinner and thinner. My fingernails had a blue hue to them, which I covered up with black nail polish often. I was always, always cold. Even in a warm climate like Pakistan's. The relatives, they hassled me about eating a bit, but not too, too much. I pretended as best as I could, moved stuff around on my plate, and there was one month I'd look forward to all year. That was Ramadan, because it gave me the opportunity to starve myself freely without detection, without nagging. My parents would call, and when I saw them over breaks, they'd know something was up, but ultimately they thought I'd just become really conscious about diet and weight loss and appearance or something. They knew, though, I was unhappy with the culture shock, with the stricter rules and the gender double standard nonsense I encountered often. They told me to come back home if I was unhappy. They were totally supportive of that, but I wasn't a quitter. I wanted to finish my two years, and I didn't want to go to some all-girl school in Saudi, so I stuck it out. They chalked the weight loss up to a mixture of teenage shallowness and homesickness or something, but I don't think they were even aware of eating disorders. I stayed with my parents only for short periods in the summer and winter holidays, before I returned back to Pakistan, freer to starve myself without the watchful eye of my parents. But in Ramadan, it was easy. I took up religion just for that reason around that time. Not many people in the house I was living in would fast at all. Their hang-ups were more cultural than religious, but I started fasting regularly. That opportunity was too good to pass up, and I'd run on the treadmill too for ages. Say I was prepping to eat the greasy feast, but in reality I'd grab an orange and excuse myself. Say I was going to pray in my room. No one really paid attention to how much I ate or didn't eat those times. It was convenient. Up in my room, I'd sit with a tiny single orange and obsess over whether I should eat the whole thing after a day of total starvation. I'd pick at the fibers endlessly, prolonging the ritual of eating that orange. I would hear multiple competing mosques blare their prayer calls from opposite directions. My head would spin from the weakness. 
but that part of my life is thankfully over. And as I sat down to write this, it was difficult. More than I can explain because I didn't want to remember and I didn't want to put on record a painful part of my life. But as I was writing, I was looking up anorexia and Ramadan. The more I googled, the more I saw that I wasn't alone in this. It's an actual thing. I saw article after article about eating disorders and Ramadan. Several people had already written about it and identified it. That realization made me feel less alone, even though it's been years and years and years since I thankfully got over it. It still feels good to see the problem being identified. I'll add some links to the articles I came across in the show notes. Each article links to resources. If you're suffering from an eating disorder and you need help, I'll add extra resources in the show notes too for anyone struggling with something like this. Know that you are not alone. You can talk to someone. Taking that first step, even acknowledging it to yourself that there's a problem here, makes a huge difference. It's not worth it. The damage that this can do to your body over the long term is more than you realize right now. I feel incredibly fortunate to not have been engulfed by it for too long. When I moved back home with my parents, eventually I started to get healthy again, but there is still always a flicker of that memory when I encounter Ramadan, even today. My thoughts are with those who have been in my shoes, who struggle with an eating disorder in the Muslim community, especially around this time of year. Now, I'm going to end this episode just by reading some quotes from the articles I came across. The first few are from an Australian ABC article. Fasting triggered a relapse. Last year, Bahar, thinking she'd recovered, decided to fast for Ramadan. I really tried last year to do it properly, she says. I had thought I was coming out of my eating disorder and I thought I was getting good. But my mom pulled me up on it. She said, if you're not breaking fast at sunset, it doesn't count. You're still ill. Philippa Hay, a clinical psychiatrist and the chair of mental health at Western Sydney University School of Medicine says, cultural practices can be used to justify internal motivations. Professor Hayes worked with Muslim communities and says exemptions from the fast are available for those who ask. Often, however, Muslims with eating disorders won't ask because the nature of the eating disorder is that fasting is seen as a positive thing. There's quite a tricky pathway to help the person not use Ramadan to continue or exacerbate their eating disorder, she says. To understand that food is something celebrated and how to navigate through times when there is a plethora of food is part of the strategy of learning to live with a disorder. There are codes in the Quran that say if you are ill, if you are traveling, if you're pregnant, if you're menstruating. There are so many factors for you not to need to fast. And here are a couple quotes from an article that I found in The Independent. This intensified during the summers and during Ramadan. So I know what young Muslim girls with eating disorders are going through right now. Many don't know if they're fasting for Allah or for anorexia. Some sufferers feel like they are being rewarded anyway when starving themselves because Ramadan is the one month they can get away with it. The eating disorder charity Beat says people have reported difficulties to them during Ramadan and other religious occasions. Food is central to a lot of religious festivals, so Christmas is another time where people with an eating disorder may experience difficulty. And here's one last quote before I finish up. 
It took me a while to realize that not fasting last year doesn't make me a bad person. It makes me a good one. I made a choice to look after my body and mind. So yeah, I mean, if you're struggling, please know there's help out there. Statistics show that majority of people are able to recover. If you're dealing with guilt about not being able to fast because it triggers a relapse, please know that there are exemptions for people with illnesses. Looking after your health is the most important thing. Talk to someone. I'm here for you, should you need me. I'm not a professional though, so please do check out the links I'll add in the show notes. And with that, let me say once again that these are all imperfections affecting Muslims. This is the human condition. We're all more alike than we realize. Otherizing and fearing an entire group helps no one. Thanks to all my patrons and listeners for keeping this show going. We're getting closer to the 250 patron mark where I'll do my second AMA, so if you've been wanting to support this show, now's the time to do it. Help us get there because AMAs are fun and because I certainly still need your help to keep this up. Thank you all for listening. Till next time. Thanks for listening to another episode of Polite Conversations. You can support this podcast by sharing the shit out of it, making some noise about it, or contributing via Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes. No Ian mangoes. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at nice mangoes. If you want to make a one-time donation instead of a monthly Patreon one, you can do so via PayPal. NiceMangoes.blog at gmail.com. Remember, no Ian Mangoes. If you've got an interesting story and would potentially like to be a guest, you can email me there too. A special thanks to Dylan Beck for theme music, sound, and production help. Music